I really don't think we should frame uh, paid leave as sort of a silver bullet for solving gender equity. I don't think that argument is actually supported by the research, but I do think that we should frame it as a way to support families and health and well-being of families, and in particular, less advantaged, lower-income families, and sort of really set their kids up for better chances of success. Hi, Ioana. Hey, Kat. So today um, you have a great conversation with one of your colleagues, um, Maya Rosen Slater. Tell us more about her work. So yeah, we're going to be talking today about family leave. And, you know, what's one of the things that was really interesting from my conversation with Maya is that we often think about family leave as an issue around women. And a big point she makes is that it's more of an issue around poverty, that, you know, paid family leave is going to help poor families who have a new baby or maybe who have some care needs to take care of an elderly relative. It's going to help them to first of all, help that person. So their their health outcomes of these people might be better. For example, the newborn babies and also just take care of themselves, you know, during that Mm -hmm. time. And that's particularly relevant, right, for for new mothers. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's interesting because uh, one of the great things about doing this podcast as part of our class, Social Policy Through Podcasting, is sometimes we'll learn about research and the students will assume that um, the research is relevant for one issue, which is, in their case, the students thought family leave was very specific to gender equity issues. But as you said, and as we learned from Maya's research, it, it, it's really connected more to poverty. And um, in some cases, the, the link is really strong to um, uh, children, early childhood and children's um, health that's and education right. outcomes. So that's one of the benefits of, of going straight to the the research and the evidence is that um, sometimes we get surprised in interesting ways. Exactly. So let's all be surprised together and let's take a listen. Terrific. Hello. So today I'm happy to welcome Maya Rosenslater on the show. Maya is an economist and a professor at the Stanford Department of Health Policy. She's an expert on family economics in general and family leave in particular. And you can actually follow her on Twitter at Maya underscore Rosin. And today we're going to discuss a review paper about paid family leave that Maya published recently uh, with Jenna Stearns in 2020 in the future of children. So Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, jumping right in, the U.S., you know, it's the only country besides Papua New Guinea without a statutory national paid maternity leave and actually one of the few high-income countries that do not provide right any paid paternity leave either at the federal level. So why is providing family leave important and what's at stake for you personally in studying this? Yeah, um, these are all really important questions. Um, So absolutely, U.S. is an outlier in the sense that we're really one of the only countries in the world and certainly the only high-income country. Um, So, for example, comparing to Canada, comparing to countries in Europe, 
um, that does not have a federal paid maternity leave policy or paternity leave policy or really family leave um, for other types of caregiving, such as caring for, you know, a sick family member. Um, you know, there's a wealth of research by now suggesting that paid family leave provides important and valuable benefits to families, and in particular families with young children. Um, so for example, we know that when um, families have access to paid leave, infants um, you know, experience better birth outcomes, are less likely to be hospitalized during their first year of life, um, are more likely to be um, receive their immunizations on time, um, and even have better medium to long-term outcomes. Mothers who have access to paid leave experience better mental health. Um, and um, in general, you know, families, especially low-income families that have access to paid leave, you know, experience more stability and more financial security. So precisely, why is it important that it's paid family leave versus just having some sort of family leave? Right. Um, so, yeah, so the U.S. actually does um, have at the federal level an unpaid uh, leave policy. So the Federal Family Medical Leave Act, which went into effect in 1993, provides 12 weeks of unpaid leave. Uh, to uh, people who have a new have a newborn child um, or an ill family member, um, it's unpaid, um, and only about sixty percent of the workforce is actually eligible um, wow. for this policy. Um, so, in some ways, it's actually a very inequitably distributed um, benefit. So, low-income families are much less likely to either be eligible for this policy or to be able to use it even if they are eligible, precisely because it only provides unpaid um, time off. And so I think paid leave is particularly important. We saw in some of our work uh, that looked at the introduction of California's first in the nation state level paid family leave policy that went into effect in 2004. We saw that uh, this served as a way to uh, more equitably distribute access to paid leave in the sense that less advantaged uh, women were much more likely to actually take leave um, after the policy went into effect. Right. It's important to understand here the stakes, which is that if you are, you know, a lower income family, it's like, are you going to get paid, you know, and have something to put food on the table? Or are you going to have to, you know, stay home and find some way to make ends meet and be with your child? And you talked about all the positive health benefits for infants. Uh, and so they're a bit caught between a rock and a hard place as far as being able to afford the kind of leave that is much more accessible if you have higher income that you can cover the leave. Plus, the other thing you mentioned is that there is unpaid family leave that many are allowed you know, to, to take. But the eligibility, I mean, you know, just getting that benefit, it's more likely if you're already in a higher paying job. And then... If you're in a higher paying job, that also means right, you have the income to be able to sustain not getting paid for several weeks uh, to be able to stay home, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then also, you know, when we think about outside of the limited federal legislation um, and then the few state level policies that we have, the vast majority of American workers um, can only get leave benefits through their own employers. And we know that is not nearly at all a universal benefit. Um, so I think the latest statistics is something just above 20% of American workers have access to paid family leave through their own employers. And there's also large inequities um, 
across workers. So for example, workers in the bottom decile of the income distribution, so some of the lowest wage workers in the country, only like 4% um, have access to any type of paid family leave benefits through their own employers. So really the vast majority of American workers have no access to paid. So just to clarify for the federal policy, which co concerns unpaid family leave, even with that, you know, you've said only about 60% of people get access and low wage workers are often less likely to get access. So why is that? Yeah, so there's quite a few um, eligibility criteria for the FMLA. So for example, you have to work for an employer that has at least 50 workers. Um, so you have, you have to be in a large employer and you have to have um, a fair amount of job tenure at the job. So lower wage workers are more likely to be in smaller firms, smaller businesses, um, and then also are you know more likely to have more turnover. And so they're less likely to have um, the lengthy job tenure that's necessary to uh, qualify for the federal level. Right. So, you know, you, you mentioned how paid family leave can be so beneficial. And, you know, I'd like to zoom in to some of the concrete evidence we have for some of those effects. So to start with, uh, you know, we mentioned some of the health effects. So how can family leave benefit people's health and how do we go about demonstrating that? Yeah, I think there's, you know, a lot of research has focused specifically on paid maternity leave. Um, so that is what I'll sort of start by talking about. Um, and in particular, looking primarily at children's health, so infant health and then longer term outcomes, um, and then to a lesser extent um, on maternal health. And now I'll return to like the bigger picture, of like the broader policy um, and then some other impacts. In the United States, a lot of the research has looked at California's policy. So it's been in effect um, now for almost 20 years soon. Um, and so um, there's been a lot of work trying to look at what happened in California once that policy went into effect in 2004. And typically what people will do is they'll look at um, families in California who had kids before and after the policy went into effect in 2004 and compare them to similar families, you know, in other states that did not um, establish such a policy. Um, and so this is where we have evidence, for example, that there's been reductions in hospitalizations um, amongst infants in the first year of life, specifically for preventable causes. And specifically, it seems like for causes that very young infants are susceptible to if they go into group childcare. Mm -hmm. um, so you can imagine that if um, a family doesn't have any paid family leave, um, then, you know, a few week old infant is going to have to they're going to have to have childcare somewhere, especially if it's a low income family where the parents have to work or the mother has to work um, in order to sustain the family. And so um, they might be having to be in the position of sending their very, very young infant into, say, a group childcare environment, which in general is a very great thing. Group childcare is wonderful, but is particularly um, can be risky in terms of disease transmission for very, very young infants. So they much more likely to be susceptible for things like RSV or other respiratory um, conditions, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so here in the case of California, it kind of serves as our guinea pig, you know, to understand the effects of those policies because they're a big state. So I guess we have a lot of data and we can look at what happened to these mothers and kids. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we can also learn from other countries. And so there's been a lot of research looking at policies around the world. And a couple studies come to mind uh, focusing on Norway. Uh, Norway is interesting because they introduced their paid maternity leave policy in 1977. Wow. Um, and so that allows researchers to actually look at much longer term impact. Because um, the the people that were um, you know born right around the time when the policy went into effect are now adults, um, and so um, researchers have looked at that. And it's also useful because it was only at the time a four month paid maternity leave policy, um, so it's sort of relevant to the discussions we have in the United States today. A lot of the other research that's set in Europe or Canada, you know, looks at expansions of much longer paid mm -hmm. leave policies that are sort of not relevant to any of the policy discussions that we have in the United States today. Um, and so when they looked, when researchers looked at um, the introduction of paid maternity leave in Norway, they found that um, the kids that were born once that policy existed were much more likely, for example, to graduate from high school when they were you know older and had better um, employment outcomes and earnings outcomes as young adults and these benefits were particularly large for kids from relatively disadvantaged households so kids whose mothers for example had less than a high school education themselves um, and then also researchers looked at maternal health um, so they looked at how women were faring um, actually quite a few years after childbirth so they looked at maternal health around the age of 40 this is after a lot of women um, had already had children. Um, and they also found improvements in a wide range of margins, um, both in terms of physical and mental health. So it really seems like paid maternity leave has important health benefits that last over a longer term. And I think this is particularly important as we think about the broader um, research that you know, finds that what happens in the early life environment, what happens in early childhood, has lasting implications for people's well-being throughout their lives and even across generations. So right. we have this body of evidence that documents that, you know, the early childhood period is this really critical period for development, for human development, um, what we call human capital formation. Um, and so, you know, you could think about paid family leave as one of the policy tools that we have to equalize um, the environments into which people are born into so that we can set them up for the best possible chances of success over the life cycle um, and even, you know, across right. um, nations. So I think that's an important point because that means that if we as a country invest some costs into this paid family leave system, that is something that is going to pay off and also pay off over a long run, which by the way, from a policy perspective, it can be a little tricky because a lot of budgeting actions are with a 10-year window as far as budgeting and some of these effects, right? So we're talking about impacts on people graduating high school, you know, from birth, that's 18 plus years later. So that wouldn't be counted, right? In a strict, you know, 10-year uh, impact assessment. And so, you know, that's something that for a lot of these policies that, you know, concern children and can have positive long-run effects, um, you know, they can be undervalued if we're just looking at the, at the short-term effect. Yeah, we have to think about it as a long-term investment, much like we talk about, for example, public preschool interventions. Um, I think we have to frame paid family leave as another policy tool that we have to view as a long-term investment. And one thing I want to add here um, is that, you know, oftentimes, actually, um, policy discussions surrounding paid family leave actually frame um, this policy as a gender equity issue. 
Um, right. A lot of the focus when we talk about paid family leave is actually not so much on the health of kids and families more generally, but much more about women's careers. Um, so often we think about paid family leave as promoting gender equity through two channels. First, you know, maybe some women um, would have otherwise quit their jobs, but now if they have access to paid leave, they can take leave and then continue in their careers and advance in their careers. So that is hopefully um, a mechanism for increasing gender equity within jobs, within the labor market. On the flip side, you know, paid family leave, we've just been mostly talking about mothers and kids now, but fathers are also eligible for all of the current state level paid family leave policies. That's interesting. I didn't know that. And so, you know, the idea being that if fathers also take family leave, and then hopefully that will increase their participation in childcare in the home and household activities more generally, and thereby increase sort of gender equity um, within the household. And in fact, in Europe, um, as well as in Canada, there have been a number of reforms really trying to encourage fathers to use uh, these leave benefits. These are called daddy months or daddy quotas in some countries, where the idea is, you know, there's a certain number of months where fathers have to take or the whole family loses them. So you can't just transfer the leave um, over to the other parent. Um, and so, you know, people have been really hoping that these types of policies um, improve gender equity, right? Again, both in the labor market and in the household. But I would say, unfortunately, the research is really quite mixed um, on all of these outcomes. So A, it's not clear that, you know, paid family leave has dramatic impacts on women's careers. Um, the evidence from the U.S. suggests that there's maybe some small positive effects on women's later um, labor market outcomes. In some cases, actually zeros. Um, in terms of men's participation in the household, really, there hasn't been a whole lot of sort of concrete evidence that this has changed dramatically um, as a result of um, these leave policies. And in fact, if you looked at some of the longer uh, policies that exist in Europe, so for example, you know, in Austria, we expand leave from two to three years or something like that, um, we actually see detrimental impacts on women's careers. So when women are out of the labor force, for several years after childbirth, this actually has negative consequences um, for how they do in their careers. Why do you think that might be the case that if women stay out for too long, it could have a negative effect? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different mechanisms potentially. Um, so one is just, you know, as the longer you stay out, you know, you especially in some careers, it's hard to kind of catch up, right? You know, as technology develops, as tools develop, as sort of there's, uh, there's lots of things that change uh, particularly quickly in some careers, and so it might be harder to catch up. Also, you know, women typically have children during sort of these really career-forming years, right? Like late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s. Um, and so you might be missing out on kind of key promotions or key ways to advance um, within the career. So those are kind of, um, I think, mechanisms that happen mostly through the employer. And then on the flip side, you know, as women maybe stay out from the labor force for two or three years, they themselves might be less inclined to go back full time to work. You know, they're, you know, what they want to do and how they value life might change as a result of that experience, I think, quite naturally. Um, and they might themselves prefer to have sort of lower stakes careers and so on. So I think it can really um, kind of change uh, people's trajectories. But what I was going to say is that I really don't think we should frame uh, paid leave as sort of a silver bullet for solving gender equity. I don't think that argument is actually supported by the research, but I do think 
that we should frame it as a way to support families and health and well-being of families, and in particular, less advantaged, lower-income families, and sort of really set their kids up for better chances of success. Right. So, you know, as I hear you, the evidence is most you know, convincing in terms of supporting the fact that paid family leave in particular has positive effects on children. Uh, And as for mothers, it's a little bit mixed. And certainly if we look at these smaller extensions of paid leave, they seem to be neutral, like not doing any harm, but not necessarily any good either. And it's kind of interesting because in Europe, a lot of the paid family we have is much longer. And, you know, you were mentioning this before with examples from Norway that Right now in the U.S., we are potentially considering going from zero months or weeks of paid family leave to something, whereas over there, they already have family leave and they're considering extending it. And that's how we've seen some of this evidence that you mentioned from Austria, where extending it even longer could potentially have negative effects uh, for mothers and their careers, they being able to, you know, hold on and progress in their in their careers. So, you know, it sounds like the key takeaway here is that, you know, it, it really seems to benefit kids uh, and especially kids from, you know, lower income families. And, you know, I would say that this chimes with my own research I'm working on right now, looking at the cost of childcare, which is a different way that families can be helped to to be able to manage those early months and, you know, showing that for low-income families, having expensive childcare makes it harder, you know, for them to, to go back to work. So there's all these economic issues and health issues that are in the nexus of how we can help you know, low-income families uh, when they they first have a child, uh, an infant. So what are the costs of not offering paid family leaves for poor families? You know, what, what is the situation that they're facing right now in the U.S.? Yeah, so I mean, I think all of the things that you just sort of really helpfully summarized are, you know, are part of the answer to that question, right? We're going to lose out on, you know, these important benefits that we know um, when families have access to leave, their kids' experience. Um, I should also mention, so, you know, we just talked about women's careers. There's also maternal health. Um, mm-hmm. and that is something that, you know, the U.S. does terribly on, sort of when compared to, again, in sort of comparisons to other high-income countries. We have a much higher maternal mortality rate, for example. And we have dramatic disparities in maternal health um, by race, ethnicity. So Black women are more than three times more likely to die from childbirth-related causes than their non-Hispanic white counterparts. Um, and so I think one of the, the things that we should sort of add to this calculation, what do, what do families lose out on, is also maternal health benefits. Um, we know that, you know, while some of the issues, you know, in terms of maternal postpartum health have to do with the healthcare system, I think a lot of it also has to do, and other scholars have pointed this out, has to do with women's environments in their homes, right? So if once they're discharged from the hospital, um, they have to go into an environment where they have to immediately go back to work or face the stress of taking a leave and not knowing if they're gonna have a job in some number of months and not knowing if they have the income um, to support their new families, all the while dealing with often challenging recoveries from childbirth, um, mental health issues that are much more pronounced for women in the most uh, postpartum period, 
you know, this is a really vulnerable time. Yeah, you know, that mental health point is really critical. Actually, I just wrote a meta-analysis of uh, depression prevalence among women in pregnancy and postpartum. And among lower income women, it's as high as 30% or so, uh, you know, in, in rich countries, including the US. And it's about half as much around, you know, among higher income women. So we can also see the vulnerability that this whole issue plays into uh, with women being able to take care of themselves as they come out of childbirth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's a really important part of the equation. Um, right. And um, I think, you know, potentially one of the reasons, you know, in my view, one of the reasons that we do have such poor maternal postpartum health outcomes has to do with our sort of very fragmented safety net for families, especially during those vulnerable times. And part of that has to do with both lack of access to childcare and lack of access to paid family. One of the issues here is perhaps there's some resistance on the business side. So what are the effects of businesses of uh, either maybe some choose to offer paid family leave? Why do they do so? Why doesn't everybody offer it, you know, voluntarily? And then if we force them to provide it, what might be some of the costs? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important question because, you know, sometimes we talked about we talk about pay family leave in terms of all of the benefits. And it's kind of like, well, what the obvious question is like, well, why aren't we doing this? Exactly. Your so benefits like what is going on? Right. Um, and I think, you know, so as you say, the key opposition to um, federal and state paid leave legislation comes from from business organizations, in particular, organization representing the interests of small businesses. Um, so, um, you know, the common argument goes that like, yes, paid family leave is really great. Like we all agree that it has these benefits for families, um, but it's really costly for businesses. You know, this is gonna be a disaster in terms of small businesses. And so we really can't have the government kind of mandating um, this benefit. And up until very recently, we actually haven't had a whole lot of evidence to either support or negate that point, right? So it's just been really hard actually to get data. We don't have a whole lot of great data on the business side when it comes to paid leave and how businesses fare. Um, and so in part to help fill that gap, um, or in a recent paper of mine, um, this is joint work with uh, Anne Bartel at Columbia University, Jane Wolfogel at Columbia University, Christopher Room at Virginia, and Meredith Slopin, who's a PhD student at Columbia University. Um, so we, what we did is we um, surveyed small businesses. So these are businesses with up to, so less than 100 workers. Um, and what we did is we went in and surveyed businesses in the state of New York, as well as in the state of Pennsylvania, actually. So New York is a useful test case because New York implemented their paid leave policy in 2018. So we went in and surveyed them in 2016 and 17 and the two years before the policy went into effect, and then again in 18 and 19. And then we also did the same with Pennsylvania employers. So Pennsylvania has not had um, any family leave policies up to now, or still does not. And, and so Pennsylvania employers serve as sort of a control group um, in our analysis. And we asked these businesses a variety of questions related to how they view their workforce, so how they rate you know, the commitment of their workers, the cooperation of their workers, um, attendance, uh, productivity, and so forth. And we also asked them questions specifically about how they deal with employee absences of various lengths, in particular lengths of longer than four weeks. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so we've asked these questions in all four years, both before and after New York's paid leave policy went into effect. And then we looked at what happened once the policy was in place. Did things change in New York as compared to Pennsylvania? So before we go into what happened, can you just briefly say what the policy was roughly so we understand and was there any financial burden on these small businesses or who was paying for the paid family leave? Yeah, that's an excellent question. (laughs) So New York's policy is similar to the other state level policy. So it's a partially paid paid family leave policy. Um, At its full implementation, it offers 12 weeks of paid family leave with, I believe, about 66% wage replacement up to a cap. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not paid directly by the employers. And by the way, this is the case pretty much with all paid leave uh, policies that currently exist in the U.S., as well as all of the current proposals at the federal level. Um, it is never the case that businesses are financially responsible for making these payments directly to workers. Instead, these policies are funded by employee payroll taxes. Mm-hmm. The workers pay into the system, like Social Security or something like that, um, or UI. UI, unemployment insurance, for those who aren't aware of the, yeah. So basically, if you had this paid family leave scheme, you would likely be paying payroll taxes like you're currently paying for health benefits, unemployment insurance, and so on. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. So the so the businesses themselves kind of were not responsible to make any payments directly to workers who take leave. But of course, you know they had to figure out what to do, right? If their worker is out for you know eight weeks or twelve weeks or something like that, like how do they cover that work? How do they deal with that? How do they navigate? And and most of the um, opponents of paid leave proposals. Um, are, you know, they argue that those are the big costs, right? Like just navigating, dealing with leave. And especially, you know, imagine an employer with just 10 workers, you know, having one person out, like that's a big deal, right? right? And so what we found, so, you know, we thought maybe there might be some small negative effects, especially because that's the key argument against paid family leave. Instead, we found no evidence of that. If anything, we saw that employers actually said it was easier to deal with workers' absences. Um, And I think the reason for that is like at the end of the day, people have needs that require them to take leave. Like workers will have babies or they might have um, family members that have a temporary illness or something like that and need care. Um, And so up until such a policy existed, businesses had to figure it out on a case-by-case basis, right? Patch together um, sick leave or, you know, vacation benefits or unpaid leave, like whatever it may be. And once they have a state system in place, it's actually kind of easier to manage it at the, at the you know, business level. Um, and so, you know, so in our view, like we didn't find any evidence in support of this idea that paid leave is costly for businesses. If anything, they seem to actually like it. Uh, when it's um, when it's there as a state level policy. So if that's the case, why do you think, you know, to circle back to our opening statement here that, you know, the U.S. is one of the only countries not to provide that? You, you know, we talked about the benefits to kids' health in particular, the long-run outcome. You talked right now about your research showing that it doesn't seem to have a negative impact on small businesses based on New York State adopting this. So what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think part of it is just politics. Um, I think there's a strong ideological um, resistance 
to government mandated benefits. Um, and I think that force is quite strong. Um, and I think, you know, um, you know, like, yeah, my hope is that once there's a bigger evidence base there, then this argument that it's really costly for businesses is just not going to stand up to, you know, the evidence. But at the end of the day, I think um, there's just a lot of sort of ideological resistance to the idea of paid family leave. Um, and, you know, the other thing that's interesting, um, both Republicans and Democrats are supportive of some type of paid parental leave um, policies. There's much more resistance to a broader paid family leave policy that would also cover leaves to care for ill family members. You know, people worry about there being like more fraud, right? So like, it's easier to show that you've had a child than it is to sort of document that you have a family member that has an illness. So precisely, you know, if you had to put some policy proposal on the table that, you know, is consistent with what we know, what would be some sort of gold standard for paid family leave based on what we know? And perhaps what might be U.S. applicable? <laughs> Yeah, so I think, you know, you sort of have to weigh the considerations of what we know from the research side with also like the politics of how to actually implement um, a policy. So I guess the, the, the first order question is like, how long should it be? Um, and here, I think, you know, honestly, like from the research side, I think anything up to like six months, if not longer, up all the way up to a year has shown, been shown to have benefits for families without really any costs, like in terms of, for example, women's careers or anything like that. Um, you know, in the US, I think the max we've gotten in terms of like a proposal has been 12 weeks. You know, when, when this was sort of actively under discussion in terms of the Build Back Better plan um, in the fall of 2021, you know, I think we went from like there being a 12 week policy in place to then it being cut to eight weeks and then all the way to four weeks, and then just disappearing. And so, you know, at the time, I remember having some discussions um, about like, well, what do you think about a four week policy? And I would say, you know, I, I firmly believe that four weeks is better than zero weeks. But my concern is that with, when you think of a policy that's too short, is like, I don't actually then think it's going to have that much of a dramatic effect mm -hmm. on, on families and people. I mean, you know, if you have a very short policy, like it's probably not going to, these benefits that we've been talking about, you know, it's hard to imagine that they're going to be that pronounced mm -hmm. um, when you have such a short. So then do you have an idea about a minimum unit of meaningful <laughs> duration? Yeah, I would say something like 12 weeks really um, seems sensible. Um, and yeah, and I worry that something that's shorter than that is just going to have really no effect. And then people are going to look at it and like, look, paid leave doesn't have that many benefits, right? And so that so there's that. And then in terms of like the other policy parameters and in terms of whether you should cover only parental leave or other types of family leave. So there's arguments to be made in both directions. But my personal view is that you know, one of the oppositions to paid parental leave only is that like for people that don't have kids, you know, they feel like it's kind of unfair. They're paying into the system. Um, and if they don't want to have kids or don't, you know, like then they don't actually ever reap the benefits. Paid family leave makes it such as much more universal and makes it that like we all have something at stake here in the sense that we all could at one day be in a position where we have to care for a loved one or our own um, temporary disability, right? We're a sort of an insurance policy for all of us in those events. And so from my view, making it broader than just parental leave is valuable um, with that regard. 
Right. And so, and in terms of financing, I guess the payroll tax would be the natural thing to do here, right? Yeah. I mean, that seems to be what has worked in, in several of the states. Um, fairly sort of, um, it's been implemented and has worked. I mean, the other thing I should point out, like, again, California has had paid leave since 2004. It's almost been 20 years. Like, we haven't collapsed. <laughs> All is good. Um, so, you know, so it's like hasn't been a disaster by any means, right? And so I think looking at successful examples um, in the United States um, is also, I think, valuable. I, I agree. So, you know, when you talked about the Build Back Better and how, you know, there's been some discussion, the things that have the fam paid family leave has been scaled down. What do you think would need to happen as next, perhaps incremental steps for more U.S. families to have access to paid family leave? Well, I think the COVID pandemic has changed the discussion somewhat on this front. Um, you know, for example, in our own study, we actually, so that survey that I was telling you about, uh, we continued it during COVID. Um, and so we followed up and so, and tried to understand what happened to businesses uh, during 2020, during the first pandemic year. Um, and what we found, one of the other questions that we asked about is for uh, businesses to share how much they are supportive of or opposed to their state's uh, paid leave policies, so New York's paid leave policy. We also looked at New Jersey as well that has a paid leave policy. Um, and we found that support for paid leave increased dramatically during mm, COVID. Fascinating. <laughs> employers that were in our survey both years. We looked at the set of employers that were consistently in our survey both in 2019 and then continued to be in the survey in 2020 during COVID. And within those that group of employers, there is an almost 10 percentage point increase in support uh, for paid leave. And it was particularly um, high amongst uh, employers who said they had at least one worker use the leave policy. So it seems like, especially as more and more people take leave and businesses realize like it hasn't been a disaster, um, you might see more support for the policy. So, so sort of, I think um, what needs to happen is more people need to understand their own state level policies or kind of have experience with these policies. And, and hopefully, you know, that can change how much they support. Right. So it would seem like perhaps the the next, you know, very incremental step would be for most states to adopt, find out that it's okay. <laughs> and perhaps, you know, thereafter they might there might be a, a federal push. And actually that can happen at any time, obviously, but this would be the sort of slow moving train and you know, hopefully because of your research in part, we come to understand and your colleagues research more about some of the costs and benefits of family leave. And we can feel more confident about what's likely to happen if we indeed extend this family leave, uh, this paid family leave and, you know, give benefits, especially to lower income families. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Maya, it's been really great to have you on the show today. Thank you again for having me. So you want to, we, we talked about how um, the students were surprised and we were a little surprised by um, the implications of paid family leave and who it affects and, and what's uh, social justice issues um, come up. So um, what struck you most from the conversation you had with Maya? 
Right. So, you know, Maya really makes it clear that paid family leave is going to help poor families who have a baby or who need to take care of other family members. And she emphasizes, you know, we also might want to talk about implementation, you know, how do we do this policy? And she emphasizes that businesses shouldn't have to be paying for this family leave, but instead it should be financed through a payroll tax. So basically an amount of tax that you pay on your wages. And this is the way that we finance other important social insurance programs like unemployment insurance. So in case you lose your job, you know, you get an income during the time that you don't have a job. So there's an interesting parallel here because in particular as a new mother, you know, you may not be able to work for a bit. And so this income for paid family leave is going to help you out and also in this case, help your baby and you taking care of your baby. So I think that's, that's, that was an interesting aspect uh, to thinking about how to implement that policy. And actually, Kat, I was wondering, you know, that's of course, this is like government doing the policy and we've seen some of the benefits to families, but obviously I'm sure there's nonprofit actors who are in this field of uh, helping families with their care needs. So what are some of the things that are being done in this area? Yeah, it, you know, your conversation with Maya reminded me of so many different organizations that our team has profiled over the years and so many different strategies that we've looked at um, where uh, donors and nonprofits can make a bigger difference. So one resource that I would point people to that is um, our Early Childhood Donor Toolkit and some work we did, it's a primer on how, you, how, how people can um, recover the learning loss due to COVID and accelerate gains. Because one of the big evidence-based strategies that we talk about is um, supporting families because right. they, our youngest children, right? They're, they're, they're not able to be independent and take care of themselves. They are reliant on the families around them for their health and well-being. And, um, you know, from a policy standpoint, paid family leave can help with that. And there are a lot of nonprofits who are working on things like um, benefits access and um, supporting um, the financial and health um, supports that are needed by families. And I, I think that that gets to the, the broad theme that you and Maya were talking about, which is um, if families are um, financially insecure, and worried if parents are worried about themselves or the caregivers are worried that they're not going to be able to um, make ends meet, then um, all the people that they're caring for, especially young children, um, suffer. And then we all lose. Right. Yes, I think that's a great uh, you know, point. And I wonder if CHIP has any resources for our listeners to look into as far as nonprofits that are active in this area. Yeah, so um, the, the two resources I mentioned, um, the Early Childhood Donor Toolkit and our most recent primer on um, um, recovering learning loss and advancing gains, talks about specific nonprofit organizations. So a couple of examples include um, home visitation programs that um, like Nurse Family Partnerships is, is probably one of the most well-known, but there are many others that um, provide support to um, new parents. Um, and helps connect them to the resources that will help them provide a stable and loving um, home for their new children. And, and so that includes things like connecting them to um, benefits for which they're eligible, connecting them to community resources that can help them find high quality childcare 
so they can continue to work. Um, but that's one example. And there are several other nonprofits in both of those um, two guides. And, and those guides, just so that everybody knows, are um, available for free from CHIP's website, which is www.impact.upenn.edu. Terrific. So we'll add that to the show notes and we'll also add the link to Maya's paper so that you can go and have a look directly at the, the research. So great to talk to you today, Kat. Yes, yeah, same here, Joanna. Till next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>